brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, women's football land. Once again, we are here with Cleat Sheets, Jody Moose Raylander, and Aaron Redwood Truex. On the mic today with us, <laughs> we have Dr. Melissa McDonald, who is not only an amazing sports chiropractor, but an amazing women sports chiropractor. So, a little bit of background on Dr. Mack. She has been with the Minnesota Vixen and several other men's and women's sports teams at all levels high school, college, post college including a marching band. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And she is an expert on helping people understand the why of how they get injured and how to prevent and recover from said injuries. So Dr. Mack, tell us about this marching band thing. (laughs) Okay. That was a wild summer. Basically, I had just opened my practice and I got contacted and they went, hey, we have 105 marching athletes that are going to be training nine hours a day. We anticipate that some of them will get hurt or sick and we need someone out here to take care of them. Want to come? And I went, Yeah. So River City Rhythms is a drum corps international band. In 2019, it was their fifth marching season. We traveled all across the Midwest and ended the season at the World Championships on Lucas Oil Field, which was an incredible experience to get to just walk out on that field and watch them perform for the last time of that season. I was sad to see 2020 canceled, but I think minus pro sports, everything was canceled. I'm hoping 2021 will have a marching season. We will see. What's a typical marching injury? I'm just super curious about this. All right. So when you think of marching bands, you typically think of college marching bands. They march out on the field. They do some formations. They stand in place. This is that on crack. They are running 
with their instruments. So I have individuals with 45 pound quads, 45 pound tubas, and it's not like the wraparound comfortable tubas. They have orchestra tubas propped on their shoulders that are running. So if they are two feet off their dot. And the dot is the literal computer diagram of how they have to move around the field for nine minutes. If they're two feet off, they're hitting another athlete, they're hitting a prop, and they're not allowed to look to see where they're going. So when they crash, they crash hard. On top of that, there's just overuse. So we had a lot of heat injuries, knee injuries, ankle injuries. I had one of our we were training in a field that wasn't great. They thought they found all the gopher holes. They were doing a burn block where between every song they were running a mile and I had one of my drum majors step in a hole and dislocate her ankle. So it was, so things happen, but it's marching band on crack. This is the highest energy. They are dead out sprinting. They are dancing and they are playing to the end all be all of their life. It was insane. These kids worked their butt off to get to where they were. And by the end of the season, as with the last Vixen season, it was a lot of hope and tape. So I'm curious because you think of a marching band, you don't necessarily think of an athlete. So what did the initial period of working with them look like? Because I would imagine you're getting a lot of individuals who maybe don't participate regularly in athletic events, athletic competitions. They're not moving around as consistently. I'm just curious. It's not working with an athlete that's maybe coming from preseason into a regular season. You might be working with someone that has never experienced that depth of movement and that much toll that it would take on their body. So what did that initial introduction into marching band look like for folks that might not have done it in the past? So I actually missed the first month of their marching season. So I didn't get to see the acute introduction and the shock and awe that killed a bunch of people because they didn't think they needed medical for the beginning of the season. So I kind of came in and had to pick up some of the pieces. We ended up probably losing about... 10 athletes and then having to fly different athletes from around the country to fill the holes within the routine, which some of them literally just learned the movement and were there as placeholders. They didn't learn any of the music, but they would carry the instrument and just do the marching. It was just fascinating how they wanted the picture of their skit to move. And it was a story of how the news transferred from time, from newspaper to radio to just regular old news, the 24-hour news, and just how it transitioned through that. And it was like, the first time I saw them, like, I don't get this piece. Then they finally added like some oversound noises and voices. It was like chills. You got chills as you watched the piece come together. But yeah, there were some athletes that weren't physically ready. And I had work I had work to do to keep them on the field or frankly, just have to send them home. And at one point during the season, the drum corps plague hit. And the drum corps plague is simply where you have a hundred individuals sleeping in a gym, basically camp style. One person gets sick, everybody gets sick. And we got to a place in Wisconsin and there was literally the plague hall of one band. And their hall consisted of mono, strep. There was some flu buzzing about. I think there was hand, foot, mouth disease. Like 
It was disgusting. All the all the greatest hits. All, all the good, all the oh. good biohazard. I don't want you near my children. And basically, we had a rule: no one goes near gold because that was the name of the band that was ill. And one of our kids accidentally went down that hall and used the restroom. So now we have typhoid Mary in our miss. And basically, for ten days, I kept him masked. I did daily temps. He quarantined as best, kept in a little, like we were already bubbling and masking before it was cool. <laughs> I was going to say, you were totally prepared for this pandemic. Oh, you oh were, I was you were ready to go. I had my masks. They were, when they were like, oh, you need a mask to practice. I was like, cool. Reached in my box, popped my mask on. And they were like, where are we going to find them? I'm like, you don't <laughs> have, them? what's wrong with you? <laughs> So what's interesting to me as I'm hearing this litany of things that happened to your marching band is how many of them are straight out of women's football between people, you know, just not being ready for the shock and awe of such physical things. Moose, I feel Um, attacked right now. Oh, no, come on. (laughs) I mean... Yeah. I mean, I, I know you know this, Moose, but Aaron, you you don't know this. When I worked with the Vixen as their primary provider for two seasons, I was their shock and awe for the first two months for their conditioning season. And I took great pride in making sure that any athlete who attended my conditioning didn't throw up at practice. That didn't That's mean great. they didn't throw up with me. They just didn't throw up at practice. So That's great. That was... I knew what shock and awe could do. So I kind of had an anticipation for that. And then thankfully, I have resources to call on. So my husband, who I work with heavily in my clinic, is a strength and conditioning coach who has a master's in exercise physiology. So when I get outside of my rehab and I'm really looking at conditioning wise, I can lean on him to go, okay, I've gotten to this point. What's the next steps? And he can give me those. When for some reason I'm having a brain fart because it happens. There there are limits to my brain power and no say it is, <laughs> but yeah, shock and awe is always fun in the beginning of the season. I can tell who at the end of the season took the time to relax, change avenues, recover. That doesn't mean just sit on the couch and do nothing, but do something else. Granted, there are sometimes I have to have discussions with no. Just because it's not American football, Australian rules football is a sport that does not count for off season. And if you don't know what Australian rules football is, it's basically rugby mixed with soccer with 44 players on the field. But all those safety rules that rugby has about not hitting in the air, gone. They are there for blood. Yeah, literally, like, you're not sure if the player or the ball is the thing being passed. Sometimes it's both. Facts. Facts. So, Dr. Mack, talk about how you mentioned progression in a program. And can you talk about the concepts of prehab and rehab and maybe throw some of that factor stuff in the middle there? (laughs) I can throw some factor in there. So, (laughs) prehab, rehab, What we're looking for for prehab is risk reduction. Nothing is going to prevent an injury. There's no gold standard where if you do this, you're guaranteed to not get insert injury, concussion, rolled ankle, ACL. 
But what we can do is have risk reduction activities. And that's going to be your prehab. Or let's say you get injured and have to have surgery. We want to make sure that your body's in the best condition possible so that when you get out, you recover faster and are able to get back to the field. For both situations, I use something called Factor. And this is not a technique. It's really a toolbox that holds all my techniques and gives me an idea of how I'm going to progress someone back to return to play. And Factor stands for Functional and Kinetic Treatment with Rehab. It's really just a concept to take someone from broken to functional. And that broken can be a variety of different things. This works on high-performance athletes all the way to mom and dad that just want to go play catch with their kiddos or even grandma, grandpa that want to walk up and downstairs. It's all determining what the functional goal is. So if your functional goal is to get back on a football field, we're going to have a lot more steps to get there than, let's say, just going and taking the stairs or simply going out for a walk. There's a many different steps that we're going to be taking. When it comes to risk mitigation, first you have to assess what the sport is and what are our risks, which means I'm going to be doing a lot of research. And sometimes there isn't good research out there, like professional women's football, not great. So I'm having to look at women's soccer, women's hockey, women's rugby, and men's football, and then kind of extrapolating out and figuring out where are my highest risk injuries that I need to create a mitigation strategy to try and prevent. So big things, top three injuries with my football players are going to be concussions, ACL injuries, top two, and the third shoulder and ankle. It's kind of 50-50 on that one. So those are going to be the areas of the body that I'm going to focus on in the preseason to make sure that I've provided the appropriate stress and training that we don't have any issues come actual game time or actual hitting practice time. Right. And so just as a concrete example, when I asked Mr. Dr. Mack for some help <laughs> with, with a, a strength and conditioning program that focused on the upper body, I got something called a Cuban press. And it involved an eight position lift with very light weight. But it, what it did is it changed the position of the shoulder through the progression of exercises so that my shoulder got stressed in all different angles. So that's what we're talking about with prehab and trying to prevent an injury by strengthening muscles and accessory muscles that prevents you from a sudden change in direction really screwing up your season. Yeah. I mean, injuries typically don't occur <laughs> when you're on a flat, straight surface running in a straight direction. Granted, parking lots can be dangerous. I know. <laughs> Side of the street. Uh, I, just saying. I stepped in a hole last spring and broke my ankle. So there's that. <laughs> so just small, small tease right there. So – yeah. <laughs> we were typically you ha again you have to look at the sport. So, I want to make sure that let's say I'm looking at a running back. I want to ensure that when they run, whether it be on grass, turf, the shoes they're wearing, and if they get hit, their joints can take the impact and prevent as much injury as possible. There are going to be times no matter what I do, there's going to be an injury. But the biggest thing I found 
So I had two seasons as the team clinician for the Vixen through my fellowship. And the first season, I had free access to a weight room. And we did some heavy loading and heavy power work and heavy pilot. Like we were way heavy that season. We had minimal joint injuries. I was really, really happy. We had like two knee injuries, but they were both were re injuries. So they had a prior graph that both had failed. So I was like, not much I can do with that. Now, the next season, I wasn't allowed access to the weight room. I only had access to basically dry land. So we did everything the same minus the heavy weights. And I swear we had a month where we lost six knees. Hmm. Significant ACL required surgery style knees. And that's when I went, okay, there is something to loading a ligament with heavy weights. So you have to look at tissues. And we have different tissues throughout the body, bones, muscle, ligaments, tendons. All of them respond to different forces in different ways. And you have to train each one of them different to get the most out of them. So when we're looking at ligaments and tendons, they're very strong, but they don't like to change without having heavy stressors. So that means you need to get in a squat rack and you need to load that booger up and you need to maybe start with isometric work. So simply getting into a squat and just holding heavy weights or doing a wall sit and holding heavy weights, putting stress on it. Then you need to do bounding jumps. So heavy loading where you're landing safely, getting full engagement and getting that explosive power because when do knees get hurt? Change of direction. So we need to have multiple direction, multiple forces, and we have to train them in heavy, heavy ways to get the appropriate risk mitigation. The other thing that is always a concern is concussions. So both seasons with Vixen, I put in a pretty extensive concussion reduction program with one, everyone getting a SCAT and an impact exam preseason. So if there is an injury, we can get them back to play as quickly and safely as possible. But two, making sure that we had appropriate neck strengthening, including wearing a helmet while doing neck strengthening. Because it's great that you have good neck control, but when we put a bobbly head helmet on you, do you still have the same neck control so that when you're hit, you don't also whack your head off the turf? Since majority of the fields you're playing on are turf, that's not as forgiving as grass. So what we call the pumpkin tuck in, <laughs> if you land wrong. Also a chin tuck is the football version of toe pick, if you're familiar with the lovely movie, The Cutting Edge. <laughs> So Erin, what kind of injuries would you like to talk to Dr. Mack about? I, what injuries have I had? What injuries am I comfortable disclosing? No. (laughs) I, I, every season I break fingers. It just is what it is. I play on the offensive line. I'm losing at least one, if not two fingers every season. I'm not taking time off to rehab, especially with the new season, a little bit more spacing. I feel a little bit more comfortable just taping it up and going. But in terms of ligament injuries, I'm very fortunate despite having played two years of college basketball, I've avoided knock on wood, all knee injuries, which is a rarity given how much basketball I played. I'm 6'2". I'm a bigger individual. I definitely 
when I was pregnant with my daughter, I definitely felt the impact of the extra weight on my knees. But what I did experience a few years ago was actually a tear in my hip. So I had a labral tear in my hip. And what I had to explore with my physician was whether or not surgery even made sense. So essentially took a sprint and it was, it's unfortunate because it didn't happen on contact. It's just the way that I was running, the way that I I cut. It was actually a captain's practice where we weren't even fully padded. And essentially what I did, I tore it to the point where the functionality is at about 40%. And so I needed to explore with a physician if I wanted to repair it, I might be able to get to 60. You're never going to get to 100%. And so that was something that I really needed to explore, really needed to discuss. But my question really is actually more so on the treatment, because to this day, my coping and how I handle it is cortisone. I can't get through a season, no matter how much training and how much rehab I do, I need to have a cortisone shot at some point during the season. So I'm curious about the mobility and the agility and the the pre-work that you put in with athletes and how you couple that with cortisone or other medical intervention and whether that dovetails or you prefer one to the other or you feel like they're mutually exclusive. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that process looks like for you in terms of incorporating medical intervention. Absolutely. So this is really about co-management because there are things that are outside my scope. I can't prescribe medications. I can't do injections. But I want to make sure that individuals are informed of when they decide that that is necessary. What's your return on investment? Because there's a lot of things changing within the orthopedic realm when you look at the research and what's coming out. Because for the longest time in medicine, we've just done things because they've worked And because they've worked, we haven't found the necessity of using a placebo-based study or a randomized controlled test. So they'll show, hey, look, we've done this, let's go with shoulder impingement. We've done this shoulder impingement surgery. We've done it for years. People recover and get better. It's the gold standard. Well, they've started to question, are those gold standards as effective? And here's what they're finding. They've divided patients and they've done huge studies in the UK because there's no way in heck this would pass through the US review boards. Mm -mm, No way. So they divide (laughs) them into three groups. All three groups have failed physical therapy. One group is re-enrolled in physical therapy. One group receives surgery and has physical therapy. And the third group receives a sham surgery and goes into physical therapy, meaning they cut like they've put these scopes into the shoulder, and then they just sew them up without doing anything. Mm. So what you would anticipate based on a hypothesis is that groups one and three would do equally well, and group two would do extraordinarily better because they had the surgery. What they're finding is, is groups two and three do identically better. They do the same. So the placebo surgery versus the actual surgery. Meaning people are willing to put in the effort and push through the pain to do their rehab when they think the pain is coming from surgery. So in response to needing a cortisone injection, I get very hesitant with cortisone injections in athletes personally. The research has been not great on what it does to your joint over time. So when I use cortisone or recommend cortisone to a patient, it's when we've taken x-rays and it's gotten to the point that there's bone on bone and we're literally going, okay, you have to have a joint replacement, but you want to make it to this wedding. Cool. We're going to use a cortisone injection to get you there because cortisone kills cartilage. It kills the ligaments. It kills the tendons. It really does internal damage to the joints and can lead to 
further degenerative changes beyond normal wear and tear. So I understand utilizing it to get through the season. My question would be if you had the right rehab in the beginning of the season. Yeah, that's a good question. Would you have to have it? Or have you convinced yourself mentally that you have to have it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I definitely think there's a mental component to it. But for me, I think it's an even larger issue and one that we're not going to solve anytime soon. But we do what's covered in insurance and our insurance is based on what the team might have. But more likely, more often than not, it's what an individual has through their employer and what they're able to get covered. And so when we're talking about rehab and physical therapy and trying some experiential support or some type of addition to support joint function or whatever it might be. A lot of times athletes, particularly in our sport, because of the nature of how much we've progressed and how professional we are, quote unquote, you're at the mercy of your insurance policy. You're at the mercy of what you can afford, at the mercy of your copay, what makes sense. I work luckily a desk job, but a lot of my teammates, they're on their feet, they're paramedics, they're firefighters, they work in the military, and you do what is going to be the least disruptive on your life. And I think it makes it a lot more difficult to make informed decisions because you ultimately think this is going to get me back on the field. This is not going to use up my vacation or sick days at work because I need those to be able to travel for the team. And so your options truthfully end up being pretty limited, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. I had an old roommate who tore an Achilles in a football game and spent six months with a torn Achilles in a boot saving for surgery. And by the time she could afford surgery, and in fact, the hospital, I think, donated a good chunk of the cost because it was a teaching hospital. She never, I'd say 85% is where she got back to, where if you can treat things when they're more acute, you usually have a better outcome. Now, I have a question. So I've never had a cortisone shot on anything. And what is it? Does it, is it like a magic pill? How do, what does it feel like? <laughs> it is <laughs> not a magic pill. I will, I will let you answer what it feels like, but I will say it's not a magic pill. It's 50-50 if it's actually going to make it feel better. It is 50 50 mm-hmm. with the patients that I've had go utilize it. Sometimes the first time they get it, magic bullet. Next time they get it, nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My disclaimer would be I do not have a needle phobia. I do not have a blood mm-hmm. phobia. There is very little that I'm squeamish about. I know some of the toughest people on my team that will go nowhere near a cortisone shot because it is one of the biggest needles that you will see. So for me, From a pain perspective, I don't feel much in terms of the injection. They obviously inject you. For those that are unaware, they inject you with a dye. So they understand the placement of where the cortisone shot is going to go. But truthfully, you have a little bit of soreness. But the initial reaction is what's terrifying because you go through and you get a cortisone shot. For me and my hip, you need to take it easy for about 24 to 48 hours after the fact. But you don't feel anything in terms of improvement right off the bat. At least in my experience, you're looking at at least one to two weeks before you actually notice improvement and you actually feel like you have your mobility again, or in my case, the inflammation is gone and and there's a little bit of quote unquote stability. I say that jokingly because I feel like Dr. Max rolling her eyes like this. This is not, this is a bandaid on a bullet hole. (laughs) But from a pain perspective, it doesn't hurt, but it is daunting and it's a little alarming because you get it and you go through the process and then you kind of, you play the waiting game of seeing if and when it'll take effect. But Moosey, this is why the Vixen yeah. are yeah. spoiled. You have Northwestern. Yeah. You you have yeah. access to Cairo, massage, Acu, yeah. rehab, as much as you need. Mm-hmm. 
for $20 a visit and you get everything. Right. Like I can walk into the Northwestern Clinic and say, my formerly torn hamstring is really acting up this month. What do I do? And they give me three exercises and a, a P prescription for my $20 and then I'm better. So it is, I think, one of the things that the league could really start focusing on is trying to get a level playing field as far as medical care mm-hmm. for, for their teams. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting is we talk about the three different divisions. So we have division one, the team that the the Vixen, the Renegades that we play in. We have division two, and then we have D3, which is by letter of the law as listed on the website. And this is a not a knock on any of those teams, but that is the developmental division. So you're talking about players that are walking onto the field that have never suited up in a football game in their entire life. They watch the NFL and they enjoy it. And now this isn't the hard and fast rule. This is not to diminish the unbelievable talent at the D3 level, but in every level, but particularly D3, you might have an individual walking in who has no athletic experience whatsoever. And particularly since our league is structured in the way that it is, a D3 team might be going up against a D1 team or an established D2 team. And they're in for a rude awakening. And if you do not have that health system in place to support, you're looking at severe, severe injuries and lasting damage that they can experience. I mean, that was a big shift for my second year with the Vixen. I got frustrated my first season with them because I would be at all the home games and I could mitigate the injuries right there. I could diagnose, figure out, is this something that needs to be seen at an urgent care right now? Can it wait until Tuesday when I can see you in clinic? I could make those calls. Mm -hmm. Then they'd go to an away game and then they'd Mm. come back to me in shattered little pieces going, fix me. And I'm going, well, what did you do? So the second season, Mm. I started traveling. I got on the bus and I just started going with them to their games so that I knew every single injury that occurred. And I felt that made a huge difference in keeping them on the field because if they got injured, I could treat them right then and there because amount of time to treatment makes a huge difference. So I would haul up with this massive kit of stuff that I could tape, brace, scrape, cup. I had a table with me so I could adjust and I did absolutely everything I could to get them on and off the field as safely as possible. And I felt, especially that second season with them, Even though we didn't have the weight room and we did have some knee injuries, the other injuries we were able to mitigate and keep people on the field. And a couple of the knees we actually returned pre-surgery because I was really good at taping and we did a heck of a lot of (laughs) rehab to safely get them back without their ACLs until they could get surgery in the off season. Yeah. And I think that's a, a really important point to call out because- Unless you have rubs and dirt on it, right? Are you hurt or are you injured? The questions that you ask yourself every day when you're a women's football player. Is this the kind of thing, is this a hangnail or is something hanging off and bleeding? To try to say, am I going to practice today? Am I on the game day roster? All those things. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for women's football players, especially as they enter like a five, six, seven year career and beyond to take the effort to become good at recovery, right? So in my 20s, a football game, I'd recover in one day. In my 30s, it was two days. Now I'm in my 40s and it's a full three days. Like the game's on Saturday and I'm just about ready to go back to it on Tuesday. And that's just really how it is. And if I wasn't doing 
the right thing with recovery, with supplements, with icing and heat, and when both of those are appropriate. So many people in the women's football world just get up and do it. And I think that there's a big opportunity for education for all of our fellow players. Hopefully they listen. I mean, I know some people are always going to be like, ah, it's fine. You know, reps and dirt, like I said. Right. And so those, for those that are unaware, at the league level, teams that are hosting games are required to provide athletic training services. But a lot of teams, their athletic trainers don't travel with them. For the Boston Renegades, ours do. But the continuity of care you don't have, you don't experience. So if I'm playing for a team and I'm traveling up to Boston to play the Boston Renegades, if I go into the athletic trainer's office and say, yeah, I rolled my ankle, I need to tape this way, it might not be taped the way that you're accustomed to, it might not be prepped the way that you're accustomed to. There's also a little bit of, I know some teams get nervous about the security aspect. So if a player's walking into the locker room to get taped, is that their star running back? Is that their star wide receiver? What's injured on them? There's that component as well but it's just not a standard across the league for athletic trainers to travel with the teams that they serve right and i would say also the standard of athletic trainers across the league is also up and down some teams don't have the resources to get i think in every community there is a roster of atcs or at least people with that medical type of training athletic training background but can you afford the one that's really going to do the job you need to? Or do you go with the C-Squad because they're just starting out and they're cheaper and you need somebody to fulfill the, the Or do you go role? with the fact that most certified athletic trainers are extraordinarily expensive? So you go with the bare minimum and maybe just have a licensed EMT on your sideline that has no taping experience and all they can manage is, look, it's broken leg. I, I got the broken leg. I can deal with, oh, you're in cardiac mm-hmm. arrest. I got that. So it's really actually having someone that understands sport injury because I am not a certified athletic trainer. I'm a sports chiropractor and an EMT. So that's my background with a two-year sports fellowship. I have certifications nationally and internationally to solidify I do sports. But there are other chiropractors that claim to do sports and all they are are chiropractors. And if I put them out on a sideline, oh my God, I feel bad for every aspect because they're going to be really good at athletic taping. They're going to be good at kinesiology taping. But when shit hits the fan and someone breaks a leg, that's when they're going to fall to pieces. Because I've had a lot of chiros go, yeah, I do sidelines. I'm like, okay, what do you do in this emergency? And they go, I don't, I don't, I'm there. F- <laughs> I, I don't do that. Yeah. It's like- when, when your defensive tackle leaves the opposing running back immobile on the ground, and in fact, hit them hard enough that if the ground had been natural grass instead of turf, there would probably be a player-shaped <laughs> depression in the ground. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've, I've seen this happen. I got to ride an ambulance when that happened. <laughs> yes. But if you don't have a person who can make that call on the sidelines, that's a tough thing. And I think the game itself, that is just one of the many factors that we're now at a point where we can start looking at that as a real issue across the world. Absolutely. And one of the things that you brought up earlier, which I think is so important, but we're talking about athletic trainers, chiropractic providers, whatever it might be, by and large, they have no idea what women's football is. And as much as a league, we're talking about we want to be on par with the NFL or college football, whatever it might be. My body looks vastly different than the right tackle of an NFL athlete. I'm a lot skinnier 
it's the only time I'm a lot skinnier when I'm making a comparison. <laughs> Just needed to get that in there. I'm a lot skinnier than a traditional offensive lineman that would play in the NFL or at the collegiate level. I'm about the same height, but my body is vastly different. And my body was trained on basketball for the majority of my life. I had a baby two years ago. I Everyone jokes because it's always oh, you had a baby, Erin? I bring her up every chance I possibly can. But I had a baby two years ago. I still don't feel like I'm fully back from that. And it's completely different. So we're talking about someone that also might be a trainer and they might work with football players, but they're not working with female football players. It's just, it's night and day. It's a completely different experience. Yes. Right. And I think for me, most of, I've I've seen a hundred medical people traipse through the Vixen scope throughout the years. And I think for me, the biggest part is them thinking that we're going to be, wimpy is not the word, but delicate, right? Because we're women and, and not understanding. I think the most common comment I hear from a certain type of athletic trainer is, I didn't expect you guys to be this tough. I, I didn't expect you to be like, tape it up. I have a sack to make. Whereas I don't know... a women's football player who wouldn't say that mm-hmm. if, if the injury was anything less than something hanging I mean, off that, and Well, that was one of the challenges so, of being yeah. on the sideline is being the person telling the player, no, sit. You are sitting. This was where I was put. You got hit. I have to assess, are you injured? Are you hurt? And I have to make the call. And this is usually what it came down to is I know you have to go to work Monday morning. I know you have a family to go home to. I know that you are paying to play. What's the potential outcome of this injury? Is this going to be a, I can handle it in the clinic? Is this going to be a hospital visit? Is this going to be a surgery? What type of money is this going to cost? And where are we in the season? What's the score? These are all factors. Not to say, I mean, I've had coaches come up to me and tell me I'm putting a player back in. And I've looked them dead in the eye and gone, precious go away. (laughs) And it's one of those things that I've had players go, no, no, I'm going back in. And I'm like, cool, take my scissors, take their shoelaces, slice them, take their mouth guard, cut it in half and look at them and go, how? And then I walk away with their helmet because my goal is not to be your friend. I don't want to be your favorite person, but I want you to know that no matter what, I'm going to keep you as safe as I physically can and make sure that nothing happens to you that unless it's an act of God, which there are times I've seen some things that I've gone, yeah, there's nothing I could do for that. Eh, Taping up a broken ankle because it's the playoffs. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) do you remember the Frankenstein boot we made? Yes, I do. So all you listeners out there, I stepped in a hole in Iowa and broke an ankle the last game of the regular season in 2018 and um, spent the next couple of days in a boot. And then because playoffs was two weeks later, we tried real hard to get me on the field, but didn't work. And here's the thing. You learn after 20 years of playing football that tomorrow is another day. 10 years ago, I don't know that I would have been that smart. Well, so the year you guys went to Atlanta, there was another player with another broken foot, and we took one of my husband's old hockey skates, and we took off the skate, modified it, and created a cast around their cleat, taped that around it to make a 
walking boot to get the player on the field. (laughs) Right. So that's what I'm saying. When you're in the NFL, I think you have so many more options. I also think they're much faster to go the medical route than we are here in WFA. But you do what you have to, to get on the field. And sometimes that raises some of your friends' eyebrows, like playing an entire season with a three-quarter torn hamstring. So that's <laughs> Dr. Mack. That, that was before head. my time. I had to deal with yeah, fixing sure. that after the fact. But I think one yeah. of the – this isn't an NFL. This isn't a football. This is a hockey athlete. And it was a professional athlete, and it showed what money could buy. And at the end of the 2018 season – Connor McDavid, who, for those who don't watch hockey, he is the hockey player. Leading scores, leading assists. He is, this age is Gretzky. He plays for the Oilers. He is phenomenal. At the end of the season, it was a no-nothing game. He had his feet taken out from under him. He crashed into the net. He tore his PCL, which is not the ACL, PCL, which is not as easy as surgery, he tore his plantaris muscle, he fractured his tibia, and he went to four different surgeons, and they all went, you won't be back for a year, or you won't be back, this is the end of your career, this is it. And he refused to take that as an answer, and a chiropractor, of all things, this is is my happy profession story, a chiropractor from the States (laughs) reached out and went, I have an idea, what's the harm? End of the last regular season game for you. Let's give it a shot. And I mean, he was getting daily MRIs. This is the type of money he was investing in this. They did hyperbaric treatment. They had rehab. They had gymnasts working with him on mobility. He did not miss a single game. Through the MRIs, they showed his PCL reattach. They showed his plantaris reattach without surgery, just through nutrition. He went and lived with this doctor for three months, just Mm -hmm. everything. And he fully recovered. But that's what money can buy you. And that's not something that the WFA and women's football has access to yet. Someday. Yeah. So that actually, and you might not have an answer for this. I'll let you think on it. But What is something you see people just waste their money on? It can be a treatment. It could be a fancy new gadget. It could be essential oils, whatever it is. What do you think the one thing is that you see time and again, a player will come in and say, I am doing X. It's the placebo effect. They think they're seeing results, but they're not. If there's anything that comes to mind that you feel like is just, where do I start? (laughs) Okay. Top five. (laughs) Basically, any supplement, any dietary supplement, for the most part, is making expensive pee and shit. That's just where it's at. When it comes to cryotherapy, like going and standing, paying hundreds of dollars to stand in an ice chamber, no, that is not going to get you better faster. Uh, Essential oils, hate. Ooh, going to get get my pulse going right there. But I mean, a lot of, there is a lot of placebo. I mean, there is a lot of, bless your all's heart, you are creatures of freaking habit. You will do the same thing every pregame, the same routine. And if that routine varies, and God forbid it's the medical 
for the reason that routine varies, murder will be had on that field. Oh, the other <laughs> recovery drinks. A lot of times like those really mm. fancy pH water or rec- this is going to re- just drink water for the love of regular water. You're fine. <laughs> so now that I have a follow up question because I for a long time suffered with nighttime leg cramps and exhaustion cramping and added magnesium and calcium combined into my diet. And I don't get cramps anymore. Now, part of that is because I'm better overall with water intake and some other things. But is what what okay. that is? So, oh, Moose, you had to do that. <laughs> there are times <laughs> that you need certain supplements. For the most part, if you're in the Midwest, because we don't get to see the evil day star for six months out of the year, we need to be on a vitamin D supplement. That's just kind of something we need to be on. But when you go out and you spend $50, $60 on all this, this is going to help me sleep. This is going to help me recover. This is this contains six different words of things. Uh-huh. I don't know. Ashwagandha, banda, voo, voo, voo. No. But like there are times mm-hmm. when, yes, your electrolytes are off balance. You're not recovering because you're not getting effective nutrition in or you're over training what your body can take in. That's when you need to add certain pieces, but that needs to be managed. I think I'm the one that told you to take magnesium and calcium. There are specific times when you need to add certain things and magnesium and calcium, not that expensive in the grand scheme of supplements. What I'm talking about is when you have someone that comes in and says, you take this $120 bottle of supplements and this is going to make you the best person ever. No. Gotcha. So we won't name any brands, but I can think of three that might be in that realm. So supplements have a place, is what we're saying, is what Dr. Mack is saying. But that place is very You should be able to acquire what you need through your diet. If you're dropping... Correct. Yes. And another plug for Northwestern, we also get an on-staff nutrition fellow for that same $20. Y'all are spoiled. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good deal. We are, from that perspective. In other ways, very not spoiled at all. (laughs) But that's okay. So let's close this with a quick pop quiz, Dr. Mack. Five things that women's football players could do to save a joint. Knee, shoulder, ankle, elbow, anything. Weight train. Five things. Heavy, heavy weight train. But you have to be coached, observed, and make sure you're doing it safely and effectively. You can't just go in there and like try to squat 300 pounds unless you've been training to squat 300 pounds because otherwise you're going to end up squished and it's going to be a mess. So weight train. The other thing I highly recommend for any athlete that is menstruating, track your menstrual cycle. Know where you're at in your cycle. There are points in it that we didn't get to go into, but there are points that you are at a slight increased injury risk. And knowing where those are, there are ways you can mitigate those by taping and big pieces. Watch for ovulation and watch three days before you actually start your cycle. Those are where you're at your highest risk of injury. In fact, with the Vixen, three days before someone started menstruating was like ACL explosion time every single time. You guys were frustrating. Option three, drink water. That is going to help you recover. The athlete that recovers the fastest is is going to be the best athlete. So you have to make sure you're drinking enough water. What's enough water, Dr. Mack? Well, 
a general rule is the fact that in a given day, you're going to just by existing, laying on the couch as a blob existing, take up two quarts. If it's a hot, sweaty day, you can sweat two quarts of water. Think about that. So how much water do you need to be drinking? If you're out training, every 20 minutes, you need to be consuming approximately eight ounces of water to maintain an appropriate hydration level. This also means getting the correct amount of electrolytes. I personally, not a fan of the overly sugary electrolyte drinks that you can buy at most convenience stores. I'm a huge fan of just taking a little bit of pink salt and just a pinch and adding it to my water. That gets you a good amount of electrolytes right there without having the excessive amounts of sugar. So water. <laughs> Four, making sure you get your pilometrics in. So explosion work, ladder work, foot training. All of those are incredibly important. You also need to do upper body explosive training. How you can do that? Take one of those stretchy bands, put it across a squat rack and do explosion push-ups. So as you go down and press up, that's going to launch you into the air. Super fun. Makes you feel like Superman or Superwoman because you're actually... I don't know. I'm not a big push-up person, but it actually makes me feel like I'm good at push-ups and I can do the claps. I feel I feel successful for that day. And five, the last thing, the most important thing to preventing injury, go to sleep. Nothing, nothing too expensive. Stuff, I mean, right? go to the gym, get your workouts in. But that means you also need to eat, drink water, and sleep. For the love of God, sleep is where you're going to recover. Sleep is where you're going to heal. Sleep is how you're going to prevent overuse injuries. That's great. That's great. Thank you for joining us. This was hugely helpful. I hope we can have you again soon. We'll have more questions for you next time. Definitely setting the standard in the league for what the Minnesota Vixen are doing and what they're able to provide because of their partnership with you and Northeastern. Western. So... Northwestern, excuse me, Northwestern. I'm from Boston, Northeastern. It's, all, it's, it's all, okay. There's like 300 colleges here in Boston. So I, I have a hard time keeping track of them. But we are releasing this podcast every two weeks, Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For folks that haven't already, please follow us on Instagram. That is at Cleat Sheets, at Cleat underscore Sheets on Instagram. That's where we pose questions, introduce topics, and it's our way to engage and get people involved. But please give us to follow. That's all I got, Moose. Awesome. And just remember, Sheets does not have an A and Cleet does. So in case you're just confused by that, we are not. Cleet has no E. So there is my grammar nerd. Just, grammar just spelling stop. nerd. Just stop. Push for the week. So. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, this has been Cleet Sheets with an A and an E. We will be in your ear before you know it. Thanks for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.